I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Into the chasm gaping we Mirrors multi-reflecting this Between sponge-stained sheet and odorous whim Have I flick shot within Assist me to walk away in sin Where is the string that Theseus led By me out this labyrinth That is the music of Bauhaus, which features my guest today on the program, David J. Let me tell you a little bit about David J. David J. was born in the East Midlands in a town called Northampton. Inspired by everyone from Bowie to the Sex Pistols to Roxy Music, David J. grabbed his younger brother and they founded a band called Submerged Tenth. That band didn't last very long, but it was the gateway to another band called The Craze, which featured both Haskins boys, Kevin on drums and David J on bass, and their childhood pal Daniel Ash on guitar. Although they had started to amass a local following and they were beginning to generate quite a buzz, The Craze, who got their start in the late 70s, never made it to the 80s. Before they were 20, the Haskins boys and Ash already had several bands between them behind them, and when they put together yet another one, Ash, on a quest for that secret dynamic element that was missing, had the idea that this reservoir of charisma that he was looking for could only be found with his old friend from school, and he had to get him to be their singer. Now, you're probably wondering where Daniel Ash got this idea from. Well, maybe he'd seen this guy in action, you're thinking. Maybe the guy was an actor, or maybe he was in a band, or maybe he was some kind of performance artist or dancer. Um, none of that. <laughs> he was a guy who worked in a printing factory. But Ash thought he had the look and he was dynamic. Did he have the look? Check. Was he dynamic? Check. Was he the missing piece? And Daniel Ash was right that he was the perfect guy for their band? Check. His name? Peter Murphy. This new band initially went by the name Bauhaus 1919, which was a direct reference to the German Bauhaus art movement of the 20s. That movement combined crafts, fine arts, and industrial modernism. And you thought I was going to say parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Uh, Bauhaus 1919 decided to drop the numbers and just go with Bauhaus. Now, Bauhaus came together quickly, and things happened for them quickly as well. Let me explain. In an early recording session, the song In the Flat Field showed up fully formed without any fledgling wobbliness. It was dark, 
brutal, mysterious, and utterly commanding. After just six weeks together in 1978, the band already had five songs written. One of those songs was nine minutes long. Too long to be a single, you're probably thinking. Well, you're wrong. That song was Bela Lugosi's Dead. And I was about to say it would become a future goth classic, but for the sake of accuracy, let's be honest. It's pretty much the goth classic. It's like the theme song for the whole goth music movement. Bela Lugosi's Dead ended up being the key that turned all the locks for Bauhaus. The song stayed lodged on the British indie charts for about two years. It received extensive airplay on BBC Radio 1, and John Peel? John Peel was all over it. In 1980, he invited the band to record a Peel session, and from there, there was no turning back. The crypt, as they say, had been opened, and nobody was crawling back into it. From 1979 to 1983, Bauhaus put out four perfect albums before they called it a day. Although they were only together for about five years, and their music was a very specific blend of dark and theatrical post-punk, they became one of the most influential bands of all time. Soundgarden, Guns N' Roses, Ariel Pink, John Frusciante, Elliot Smith, Massive Attack, MGMT, and AFI have all cited Bauhaus as a huge influence on their own music. Now, that's a large and varied list, but just how far-reaching was Bauhaus's influence? Well, if you happen to run into the video for Chicago's You're the Inspiration, which came out in 1984, you'll spot lead singer Peter Cetera wearing a t-shirt with the name of a band on it. What was the name of that band? Bauhaus. And that t-shirt may explain the title of Chicago's next big hit, Stay the Night in the Cemetery with Me. <laughs> I'm kidding. They didn't do a song with that title, but if they did, I'd really need to hear it. After Bauhaus broke up in 1983, David J. embarked on a solo career, quickly releasing two outstanding albums, 1983's Etiquette of Violence and 1985's Crocodile Tears and The Velvet Kosh. With Bauhaus, David J. had not only established himself as a potent bassist who could play with prowl and menace, but also as an excellent lyricist. He had written a number of Bauhaus's songs, including Bela Lugosi's Dead. But these two solo albums took what you thought about David J. to the next level. Filled with poetic finesse, elegant vocals, and melodic compositions, Etiquette and Crocodile were instant classics that even now sound fresh and stirring. During this time, David J. stayed very busy. He teamed up with fellow Northamptoners, The Jazz Butcher Conspiracy, playing bass on and producing the album A Scandal in Bohemia and the EP Sex and Travel. He also played in a band called The Sinister Ducks with V for Vendetta writer Alan Moore and sax player Alex Green. No, that's not me, but I still get that guy's mail. In 1985, David J., Daniel Ash, and Kevin Haskins teamed up yet again and formed Love and Rockets. The band's debut record, Seventh Dream of Teenage Heaven, was an instant classic, and that was just the beginning. Their artistic confluence of goth, pop, and psychedelia made subsequent records like Express, Earth, Sun, Moon, and their 1989 self-titled effort, Decidedly Massive. After seven albums, Love and Rockets called it a day in 1999, but they reunited in 2008, 
to play Coachella and Lollapalooza. Speaking of reuniting, Bauhaus toured in 1998 and again in 2005. In 2008, they put out the fabulous Go Away White record, and then they disbanded again. And then, out of nowhere, a few months ago, David J. and Peter Murphy started touring together with a full band. The tour is to celebrate 40 years of Bauhaus, and, as my friend from Ireland would say, it's scheduled to go well into the guts of 2019. So catch it if you can. Now, for me, David J. is an inspiring and transfixing figure. He's a producer, a poet, a theater director, a musician, and a writer. His memoir, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, is essential reading. I've wanted to talk with David J. for a long time, and let me tell you something. It was worth the wait. It was a great chat. I want to point out to you, I have now interviewed three-fourths of Bauhaus. All I need is a Murphy to complete the goth Grand Slam. (laughs) Enjoy my chat with David J. right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Well, Pat had a reputation around town and um, of being uh, an interesting, eccentric character and uh, also not bad as a tunesmith and a lyricist. And uh, I kept hearing the name. And so I thought, well, I've got to check, I've got to check this fellow out. You know, so um, I did and uh, was was n- not disappointed. And he was playing in a pub, local pub with Max. And I, I was really charmed by them, actually. I wanted to be involved on some level. And I, I thought maybe I could produce some, produce a record. And so I put that to them and it all kind of started from there. And we had a few bevies and... Um, Next thing I know, I was I was in the in the jazz butcher group playing bass. How uh, I was abducted. How you were abducted? How did you um, how did you get along with with Pat? Uh, famously, we hit it off right from the start and become fast friends ever since, and we're still pretty close. And he's going to be opening my my London show on the twenty fifth at the Islington, as he did last year. And I'm uh, really looking forward to that. We'll play a few couple of num- numbers together as well, as we did back then. So, yes, it's great. Well, he, so here's what happened. In 1990, he came to San Francisco, and I saw him play, and he closed with an acoustic version of Crocodile Tears, um, right. which I had never heard. And he said, this is a Bob Dylan song. And so I thought he was being serious, and this is before the internet. So I literally bought every Bob Dylan record to try to find that song. <laughs> I, I couldn't find it. No, that was just Pat being Pat. The last anecdotal thing I'll tell you is people think that I'm the Alex Green that you know. <laughs> the sax player, yes. Yeah, and so I get your, your namesake. Yeah, yeah, and oftentimes I get people at, you know writing to me asking me to say hello to you. So, <laughs> at any rate, I'm I'm curious to know your take on songwriting now. Do you find that you are more efficient than you were, say, 30 years ago? In other words, what has changed in your process? I don't know about more more efficient. I mean, writing the song is writing the song is a a natural free flowing endeavor for for me. It always has been. Um, I mean, I know more chords now, so that's always good. 
um, I can get myself out of trouble using those chords and I can get myself into trouble using them as well and then get myself out again if you're with me. <laughs> anyway, um, that's part of the, the mechanical process. But uh, with me, it's always been the same. Lyrics have always come first and the rhythm meter of the of the, the lyric kind of uh, dictates the the format of the music and certainly the mood. Once I've got the lyric, the music comes pretty much instantly. And then I'll go back and I'll hone the lyric. So that's the process. Uh, the songs have become much more personal. When I first started writing, they weren't that personal. I mean, I would put, I would project my own personal experience to a degree onto the fictional protagonist of the song, or I'd be inspired by something I'd read in the newspaper and I just, you know, sort of take, take my cue from that and develop my own sort of take on this story or may maybe take the story to a conclusion that it did not actually realize in reality. But, but for the past, I don't know, oh, 15 years, my songwriting has been drawn from direct personal experience. When you were starting out writing songs, did you consciously avoid doing that? Uh, I, I think subconsciously. Yeah. I was more, much more guarded back then. And the point of being somewhat paranoid. And, but now I'm, I'm much more open. If you write about something and it scares you, like the idea of revealing whatever it is you're revealing, because it's, it could be seen as even like, you know, too much information in a way. Ah. That's where, that's where the good stuff is. You have to be brave and reveal. And it's also a process that is a kind of therapy in that you sort of, being your own therapist in a way by doing that it's very cathartic i find to be confessional in a song yeah and that that confessional element is something that i i found that as a writer myself as a young man i'm 48 now when i was younger i didn't want to be that confessional exactly it's the same thing yeah and how does that feel now i mean i, I mean for you it, it seems like it's good to exercise those I don't want to say demons, but at least those those thoughts and those anxieties, and it's nice. But how does it feel to put it out there for consumption? It feels right. It feels satisfying, and I can't. It's the only way I can I can be. You know, I can't. I can't compromise. I can't pro compromise myself in you know in in such a way that it would sort of dim the edge of the music, you know, blunt the edge of the music. It has to, or the, the lyric, you know, the content. It's just got to be real for me or else it's not worth doing. And it's not as though literary conventions are not being utilized. There's still, there's still metaphor. There's still simile. There's still, uh, there's mm. still code, which is, which is sort of at play or mythology, which is at play. Sure. But it's just yes. it's just a much more immediate confessional angle. Yes, and sometimes I will use 
third person and you know it's not always i it's he you know yeah and sometimes she even rarely but sometimes you know so there's there are those devices that you can use and it's it's just whatever intuitively feels right for the song and and whatever works for the lyric and the i what you're trying to put across you know sometimes it has to be i yes that you know mm. I, i'm still not comfortable with that like i found i think when i was in my teens and i was writing poetry it was always i and then i sort of got rid of mm. that by the time i was 28 29 and i'm still not mm. comfortable with the i I don't, I don't know why the first person mm. still makes me squeamish well it's being exposed isn't it you're at self-exposure i suppose yeah are you one of those guys that's writing constantly pretty much yeah yeah, if not if not song lyrics, then poems or prose. For songs, do you sometimes find yourself going through notebooks and sort of pilfering where you, where you might borrowing from yourself? Very occasionally, I used, that used to be the process going way back. Like when I did my first album, Etiquette of Violence, um, that was much more the case. Now it's pretty much something moves me to the degree that I feel like you know I've got to express this, usually in the form of a song lyric. And it just pours out. I'm glad to see that you and Peter Murphy are working together again. And it got me thinking about friendships. And you were talking about Pat. Is this a hard industry to maintain friendships in? Or or is it easier than it seems? Uh, I think it's easier than it seems. I think it actually facilitates friendships and, it's, and, and wonderful friendships. And, you know, you meet... You meet musicians all the time. Sometimes you you work with them. Sometimes you just cross paths. And uh, it's uh, it's a, a burgeoning family, you know. I, that's the way I feel about it, and I've, I value that the family members very much so. And and it's something that grows. That friendship, those friendships, grow over the years and become richer. And um, yeah. My friendship with Peter is an example that's gone through, you know, many ups and downs. But now it's um, it's really great, actually. It's we're on a very in a very good sort of space together, and and actually my new friendship with the the other band members, John Andrews and Mark Slutsky, is wonderful, and we're we're very bonded in this little band. It's uh, very much you know bonhomie amongst the in the ranks and it's uh it feels like a brotherhood and it feels like a little gang which is how Bauhaus felt when we first started and uh we're a tight little unit at the moment i had interviewed your brother a few months ago and i had asked him if if there was a kind of uh a confederacy in the early days with with bands that sort of in the you know in northampton if if there was a kind of um, fellowship between, instead of competition. And he seemed to think that there was, mm. that, that people did kind of look out for each other. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that extensive because there weren't that many bands, you know. Right. <clears throat> there were a few, and the, and we did, you know, we shared the bill on several occasions. And sometimes a band, one, one of the band members, Alex Novak comes to mind, who was in one of the bands back then, uh, who's still around and still organizes gigs. He organized a, a show for me in Northampton because he still lives there a couple of years ago. Um, so the, yeah, there were, 
there were characters there that um, you know, we, we're still in touch with and were fundamental to that little scene in Northampton. Are you a competitive guy? I mean, were you competitive? If you heard somebody play, would you go, oh, man, I got to... I got to up my game, or were you mostly competitive just with yourself? What immediately comes to mind when you say that is when we toured with the birthday party, and they we we had subway sex on before us, and the birthday party opened the bill. This is Bauhaus, and we were so impressed with the with the birthday party that that, and we we had kind of got sloppy at that point. We didn't we never rehearsed, thinking that. This was a way to retain our edge. <laughs> so we would just go out. Like the, so the first gig would be the first time we'd played since the last gig of the last tour. And it didn't always work, to be honest. And it was, and we saw the birthday party and they were just a force to be reckoned with. It was so powerful, but they were super tight. They would all sort of, it would be a kind of organized chaos in a way because they would just sort of lurch off in these odd wild directions but they would all go together i noticed and they were very bonded and very tight in that way and it and just the ferocity of that music and with nick at the front and the band backing him up and just pushing it to the hill it really made us like we've got to like get our act together here and really focus and we got better because of the birthday party much better very quickly and did it make you think that here's a band that obviously practices, but they're still very edgy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so after that, that we always rehearse, you know, a lot. You weren't one of those guys that would look at someone and, and seethe with jealousy. That, that wasn't you. Nah, that is not in me. I, I, if I see something that's great, I become an enthusiastic fan. And, you know, I love, I love it, you know. I got, I, no, I don't have that in me at all. Now, it, it seemed very unlikely that, that you and Peter Murphy would play together again. I mean, at least at least from the, the perspective of, of fans, it seemed like that was it and, and that was mm. that. And, and now that it's happening again, it seems like there's a new kind of musical discovery that's happening with with this, mm. this band. Um, what is the experience like for you? Is there a process where you're going, you're discovering new things and you're, and you're sort of dazzled by what creative, well, creative avenues are, are sort of emerging from the partnership. Yeah. And also to a degree dazzled by what we did in the past, which I, <clears throat> I'm appreciating on a new level now, just listening. Cause I hadn't listened to the Bauhaus music since we last played, which was 12 years ago. And then going back to it, just to refresh myself on the bass lines, um, I, was, I came to it from a new perspective and with fresh ears. And I was knocked out by how original it is. And I had this appreciation that up until now, I hadn't had to this degree. And so I was really into getting back into it and playing it. And also I wanted to, I wanted to really nail the little nuances, but also play them better than I could. But, you know, but I, I mean, I was pretty much a novice when we started the band and I can hear myself kind of stretching to play things, but now I can play with a plum really. 
with a certain amount of effortless ease, which is a great thing to have, you know, but I'm, I'm knocked out by this kid came up with these, these original parts and that, and that also goes for everybody in the band, you know, Daniel and Kevin and Peter, just all everybody pitching in such, um, original ideas and, and playing it with such passion. Um, I'm, I'm really into it. Uh, more so than our previous on our previous, like full band reunions, aside from the last year that we played together, 2006, cause that was to me, that was the absolute peak of the band live. Um, for the reasons that I just stated, because we've, we've been playing for so much longer and we just bonded together as this the little gang again, you know, but um, what is great also about this new, this new band interpreting it. And we are, Peter and I are giving pretty much carte blanche to, to John and Mark to interpret this music in their own way and bring their own character to bear on it so it makes it very fresh not to just copy what was what's there on the record but to take it somewhere interesting which they are doing especially john is a brilliant guitar player so it makes it very inspiring for peter and i to to play it with these new musicians how are you finding peter uh these days like is he a different fellow than than you remember has he has he changed or is he kind of the same kind of guy he seems like he seems like he's in a whole different pocket um how yeah. are you how are you finding him uh i've got to say that peter is a joy to be around now he's very charming and he's evolved and uh he still has, he has a very focused intensity that's great to see. And he still has the fire that he had when he was 21, when we first started the band. But he now has a much broader palette to draw from, just through experience and just through, you know, living life and, and a musical experience. So it, it, it's richer. And, um, and also we don't get uptight about the silly things that we used to in the past. And that includes, you know, just going back 12 years ago, it seems like, you know, as far as emotionally, we've both evolved and tem the temperament has evolved. So it's on a much, much more, um, even keel now. And it's, it's great. It's, it's, I'm really enjoying this, this run. And we've, I'm looking forward very much to extending it, you know, as we will be doing until, well, into next year. Do you think it's possible that you and Peter with this band could even record together? It's entirely possible. Good. Yeah. But at the moment, we're just focusing on, you know, playing the music of Bauhaus and celebrating what is now unbelievably to me 40 years yeah. since we started the band. Well, you know, I talked to Kevin about this and I wanted to talk to Daniel about it, but we just talked about motorcycles, but I, yeah. I was, 
I I was curious and I and I asked Kevin about this and he and his answer was interesting. Um you know, I grew up here in the Bay Area and there were a lot of Bauhaus fans and this is a very sunny uh, part of the world and and Bauhaus came from not a very sunny part of the world and and the music is not sunny music but it really connected with California kids as it did with people all over the globe looking back on it now and it's been 40 years and you're reinterpreting these songs and visiting the songbook is it does it even seem more remarkable that it was able to connect on such a global level because it was so specific and it came from such a specific mm. place <clears throat> Yeah, and because we we were only really trying to satisfy ourselves by making this music that didn't exist and that was, you know, inside us and we wanted to express what was inside us and uh, we didn't think about it too much and uh, and we really didn't know how how popular it would be. Uh and we certainly weren't compromising or trying to be popular at all quite the reverse you know so yes because of all of that yeah it was surprising um the fact that it connected with places like california in retrospect doesn't surprise me because when when you when you have that exposure to you know sunny days there's a yearning for the the melancholy as as to for balance you know ballast there's an appeal to that it's like you know now i live in california and i yearn for the rain and i love it when it's overcast when i was living in england it was like that all the time and you yearn for the sun so it's the appeal you know the appeal of what you you do not have ready access to and that actually becomes exotic in a way and how we always sort of yearn for the opposite. And and even in music that is sunny, like the Beach Boys music is pretty sunny, but it's also incredibly dark. It has, yes, it has that element to it, for sure. Yeah, I think it's an album like Smile. It has a, there's a, there's a, it's almost um, a, sort of a, a, an unnerving quality to it, that album. It's a little bit scary. Yeah. Yeah. And all that, that is all, I mean, but then you think of Brian Wilson and the, you know, psychological torment that he went through and that is reflected there. Yeah. I mean, like in my room is just a hymn to depression. I mean, I, I think, um, but yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's not just that though. It is also, it's also reveling in the solitary and and the it's it's sort of celebrating the um, sanctuary, you know, that you can find on your on your own. So I see I see that as m m more multi, you know, shaded than just depression. Sandwich bars, barbed wire, squares. 
into a den. The sound of the drum is calling. The sound of the drum is cold. Flash of youth shoot out of darkness. Factory town. take at the time on Joy Division? I instantly fell in love with them when I first heard the first album. I loved, I mean, I loved the sound of the album, which obviously was Martin Hammett, Hammett's production. I think they would have been a different band without them. I mean, I saw them live and they, it was a, it was different, you know, it was more raw and rough edged. It was very exciting, but that the sound of that that whole record and 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 closer as well was very distinctive and I really admired Ian as a lyricist you know he is a very romantic figure to me, and um he was a very nice man we met him and he was actually a, he was a fan of us you know he'd bought our two we had two singles out at the time. They bought both of them and really loved them. Dark Entries and Bella Lugosi's Dead and came down to see his play once. And that was... He wasn't around much longer after that and I was so shocked when I heard that news. And I'd, I'd met Bob Gretson, the manager, and Peter Hook uh, when we played in Manchester and, and the, the single of Atmosphere, there's a double A-side, Atmosphere, Dead Souls, it was uh, quite hard to get, and it was uh, only it was released through a, a label in Brussels, and it was 
had a beautiful picture sleeve. And I was talking to Rob about that, and, and he said he'd send me one. And it actually turned up on my through my letterbox or on my doorstep the morning that it was announced that Ian had killed himself. So I and I hadn't heard atmosphere, and I put it on, and it just destroyed me. So beautiful and so sad. And that whole refrain of don't walk away, you know. And I call, actually quite hesitantly called Rob to thank him and to commiserate. He could hardly speak. But, I mean, that's a band that I still, like today, you play their, their records and stands up, totally stands up, you know. Yeah, it seems like they were also poised for rather large things. Yeah, absolutely. They're about to go to America now um, and break through. And it's, it's interesting because I was asked by a, a film director. This was before they made Control, and they were going to make this film um, called Transmission. It was based on the story of Ian and the band, and he wanted me to do the music. And as for inspiration, he had in his possession photocopies of all the letters between between uh, uh, Anik and Ian. These love letters, basically. And I borrowed them one night. I actually, I felt weird about it, but I, I asked Ian for permission if it, this was okay for me to look at these letters, and I intuited a yes. So I did, and I'm, I was very shocked by one. I, I, I'm just reading this, these. They're very um, they're heartfelt, you know. He's really just laying his heart out there to this girl who he was estranged from, and, and he talks about, you know, the difficulty of the situation because he's got a wife and a kid and how it's tearing him apart and all this and how he longs for her. And very heart-wrenching to to read this stuff but then he mentions that Bauhaus in one of them and how he loves Bauhaus and he's got both his singles and he's really hoping that we're playing in London when they're recording the second album because he wants to see us and that's when we met you know when we, he did come down and we met that time but then the last the very last letter which is the long one it's it's so up the, 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 the tone of the letter is so positive and he talks about really looking forward to seeing him going to America and and just, you know, all the this music that's, you know, he's loved, it's like Iggy Pop and the Stooges, it's all Lou Reed's from America, and he talks about all of that. So, yeah, and it was, like, written a few days before he died. And that makes his demise all the more baffling. Well... Yes and no. I mean, it's quite often the case I've found through experience where somebody who is mm, bipolar, I mean, I don't think he was, you know, he was clinically maybe would be diagnosed as bipolar, but certainly he was manic depressive. Um, where you where you draw the line between those two, I don't know. But in somebody of that kind of disposition, 
they can be very up or put on, put on, a, or not even put on. Sometimes it's genuine. That's how they feel at that time. And then it just, uh, you know, the, ta- the, the scales dip, you know, and it goes the other way. And I've, I've had a lot of personal experience with other friends and family members who have shown that characteristic. So to me, it wasn't that surprising. And I think he was so compromised because of the situation and so young. You know, they just could not handle it. How do you approach this business now from a financial angle? Because I think that, like you were saying in the interview, the perception is because you're globally known that you, that you live in a castle. Um, so, I mean, you know, I see I see bands that I grew up with, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen, Violent Femmes. They're all still touring, and I assume they're touring because they need the money. Um, I, I assume yeah. they're touring because I'm sure they love it, but I also know they're not Led Zeppelin, and they're not – they're not making. There's no estate that's paying them in. How do you approach this business um, from a financial perspective? And do you think about these are things we didn't think about when we were younger? But do you think about um, you know how do, how do I want to sort of provide for myself in kind of a in a retirement plan kind of way, just that you're protected? Uh, I don't think about really um, providing for myself. Well, I'm never going to retire. I, I couldn't do that. Even if I was absolutely loaded, I'd still be carrying on. I think about providing for my son. Definitely, you know, that's a big motivator. And sometimes he need he needs money now, and because it's harder for you know young the young generation to make money as well, you know. And I want to be able to, in a position where I can help him out if ever I need to. <clears throat> so there is that, and. Um, it's as, as far as making the money, I just have to hustle and, you know, just, just, that's why I'm constantly touring. I mean, I do love touring. And I love playing live. I'm probably more so now than I've ever done, especially since I've discovered this uh, living room circuit, which I do, I do like a lot. Uh, but I wouldn't do so, so much of it. I wouldn't, if I didn't have to, I wouldn't do so much of it. And I would tour in a different way. Um, yes, it's very hard unless you've got like a marquee name, which we have with, with two bands with Bauhaus and L- Love and Rockets to a degree. Um, you can't really make the money, but we do have, we always have that option, but it's not as easy as just, okay, well, we'll do that then, you know, <laughs> it's very complicated and, um, because of just internal friction and, you know, just all the, all the, the chemistry, you know, whether the chemistry is imbalanced or not. At the moment, like I said, like with Peter and I, it's great. So we do have, we're drawing, obviously we're, we're drawing on the name of the house and it is a celebration of that. But I mean, part of why we're doing it is to make some money and I'll be, I'll be upfront about that. It's not just because we love the music, which we do. It's, because we need to make some money. And so we're out here playing. But having said that, I mean, we've done three gigs together so far. It's been, it's been so enjoyable. And you're not thinking about the money when you're on the stage. You're just thinking about the, the playing the music. And 
that doesn't come into your head. <clears throat> Moving away from business, how is your relationship with Daniel or with Kevin? You know, it's it's very, and again, I'll be frank, it's somewhat strained, I feel. And there are personal reasons for that that I don't want to go into. But part part of it, from what I can gather, is they both of them took exception to certain things that are in my book, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, um, which I have addressed directly with them. And I've actually taken out those bits in the the uh, editions that followed the first edition uh, out of deference. I mean, I, I, to me, they were innocuous these passages <laughs> but you know everybody has the different buttons and, uh, when they're pressed you know they result in a certain kind of reaction um, I'm, I'm closest to Peter than anybody and then the other two at the moment which is a very good thing because I'm playing with him right. so, <laughs> uh, there we go you know uh, with Daniel, I've, there's been a, a coming together very slowly, and it was sort of really initiated by him, which was nice. So it can all change. I'd really like to think that one day we'll all be real friends again, you know? Well, I think there's that – the brotherly element is uh... – you know, you hope that brothers can always be okay with each other. Yeah, but brother, I mean, it's usually the case that brothers are fighting, you know. And I was very close to Kevin all the way through the bands, you know. It was only after we split up the last time that he became, to a degree, somewhat fractious. As I say, there's a, there, there are reasons that I think are causing that, um, but they're, they're much too personal for me to go into. Understood. Uh, I should say that, that, and Daniel was impressed, I did make Kevin laugh, which I, I guess was not that easy <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so, that yeah. Was, that was... I, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I know where Daniel's coming from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I, you know, I've, I've listened to you for years, and I, I thought the Jazz Butcher entry point was one that you that is not one you always hear. No. But I sure like the work you did with Pat. Yeah, that was a that was a joyous time. It was like only a couple of years. We did the two albums, and I went on the road with them. And it was it was a bit like slumming it for me because of the degree of success that Bauhaus had achieved at that point. But it was refreshing just going in, in you know in the back of a transit van, you know, just <laughs> driving around Europe like we did. It was like going back to when Bauhaus first started. Sometimes it was it was hard for me because I'd been I've become used to a certain degree of of luxury <laughs> as far as like the hotels, the quality of the hotels that we stayed in, the way we were, would be treated backstage and, you know, just all of that, everything that goes with achieving a degree of success. And it was like going back, you know, it was like a board game where oh, you have to go back to square one, you know, and start again. But having said that, like I said, it was very refreshing and we had such, it was such a camaraderie in that band. 
but it it was it was uh it was a great experience and i loved the music that we were doing i i think pat is a is a brilliant songwriter and uh is such a, w- a witty chap you know um it was it was very entertaining to be around that for a couple of years and i'm really glad that our friendship has has continued and then, as I said, I'm very much looking forward to playing with him in London. Then, then the day after that, I'm really looking forward to going back to Beck Studio, which is in Wellingborough, which is where we recorded Bella Lugosi's Dead. And I recorded Crocodile Tears, most of it. And I haven't set foot in there since, since 1984. And it's still a functioning studio. And it's pretty much, it looks pretty much the same as it did back then. And I'm going to do a, a very intimate show in the studio in the actual room where we recorded Bella and there's going to be a Q and a and, uh, an interview with, uh, Andrew Brooks bank who's a writer wrote about Bauhaus, the world's authority on the band. And then the next day I'm going to record in Beck for the first time since 1984. Wow. How do you feel about that? I'm very, I'm excited about it. And, uh, it's going to be very nostalgic. I'll be tinged with some sadness because Derek Tompkins, who was the owner and the engineer and somebody who I adored, is no longer with us, so he won't be there, but I'm sure his spirit will. And I'll, I'll be dedicating the evening to Derek, to his memory. What is your relationship with Max Eider? Are you still in touch with him? Uh, not that much, no. Um, but we try to meet up every 10 years, you know? <laughs> for a couple of whiskeys and it's always a great pleasure whenever we do. I, you know, I, I love him and, uh, he's a wonderful man. I, you know, uh, I, I think that musically one of the most sublime pairings was your voice with his guitar. I can't think of anything finer oh, than you. that. Mm. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it was a joy to me, for me to play with him. He's so talented. Yeah, he's so smooth. So smooth. Yeah, I just I love that record. I love what you guys did. At any rate, I could go on all day. I'm a huge fan, as you can tell. Uh, but uh, a pleasure to talk to you. So I've spoken to you and Kevin and Daniel. I just need uh, Mr. Murphy and I'll have covered Bauhaus. Okay, well, he's, he's on form at the moment. So <laughs> I suggest you, you try to make that happen. Okay, I will. Yeah, he's, he's, he's keeping us like He's had us in stitches. He's, he's, quite, he's quite the... Uh, the witty raconteur these days. Well, it's no surprise that David J. was witty, charming, literate, urbane, and uh, altogether uh, a very nice guy. Very honest. You can ask that guy about anything. Uh, If you want more information about David J., go to davidjofficial.bandcamp.com. There's some really cool stuff Uh, on that page for you to uh, purchase. There is stuff there you've probably been looking for. There is stuff there that you didn't know existed. And uh, there is stuff there that might freak you out a little bit. But you know what? You can buy any of it. And uh, if it scares you to have, give it to a friend who doesn't scare so easily. If you want to check out the David J. Peter Murphy Bauhaus Celebration Tour... (laughs) That's not what it's really called, but it feels that way. Uh, Go to petermurphy.info, and all those tour dates 
are there. Now, if you have some extra stars in your pocket that you want to uh, find a home for, go to iTunes, subscribe to Stereo Members of the Podcast, and uh, rate our program. I'm not going to tell you how many stars to give us, but, uh, you know, if it rhymes with uh, jive, we'll be happy. But you know our main focus here on the program is keeping you happy. So if there's a guest that I have not talked to that you want me to talk to, drop me a line. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com or on Twitter at Embers Editor. Tell me who you want me to chase down. I will, uh, I will find them. I will put a microphone in front of their face, and I will make them talk to me. Okay? Did that sound too aggressive? <laughs> it kind of came out that way, but let's just go with it. Uh, I am Alex Green. This has been Stereo Embers, the podcast. Thank you, as always, for uh, being a devout member of our weird group. Uh, it means the world to us. And uh, let's close things off with David J. This is Crocodile Tears and the Velvet Kosh. Enjoy it right here, and I'll see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast. A ticket as red. The mood is blue It's ghost written All over your face I read you like a book Seeing through Without ever Losing my place Crocodile tears falling down That kind of water doesn't wash
Black-dapped hills and the velvet cars. 